0: What's going on, BrickStackers? Welcome back to another episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and today I want to spin the tables around. I'm actually bringing back Scott Herf, who you met in episode two of Stacking the Bricks, where he was talking about his first and second rather epic product launches. There's a good chance that you heard Scott's name again recently because he just launched a traditionally published book about product design called Designing Products People Love. And unlike a lot of published books, Scott's book is doing very, very well. Have you ever heard of the book Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug? It's an absolute classic, and if you haven't read it, you absolutely should. But that's not why I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it because Scott's book beat it on Amazon's charts in its own category. But this time we've got Scott coming back in a slightly different position, one where he's actually interviewing us. Because about a year ago, while Scott was doing research for his book, he sat down with Amy and I to ask us some questions about the origins of our research methodology that we call Sales Safari. What's cool about this is Scott actually knows Sales Safari. He learned it from us and he's used it to create and launch multiple products as well as grow his audience. But he didn't really know a lot about where it came from or how Amy and I have applied it in our businesses. And I'm not just talking about 30 by 500. I didn't record this conversation expecting it to be a podcast episode a year later, so the sound quality is not quite where I'd like it to be. But when I rediscovered this file a couple of nights ago buried in a folder and realized what was inside, we don't have this much awesome stuff in one place really anywhere in the world except for maybe inside of the 3500 classes themselves. So I'm really excited to share this and I'm really, really excited to hear what people think about it. It doesn't matter if you're a longtime reader, a student of one of our classes, or someone who's just found us today. There's so much in this interview for you, and I really think this is the kind of episode that people are going to be coming back to and listening to over and over again, pulling out a brand new nugget every single time. I'm pumped. I hope you're pumped, and I hope you really enjoyed this episode.
1: Uh, my, my parents always railed in me when I was writing papers for the on the on the thirtieth draft that they brought their red pen to what what are the terms um so i thought in your in your it'd be great to hear in your own words what the terms were like what what is 30 by five by 500 and what is still safari
2: so 30 by 500 is uh alex is my class for creative people so that they can learn to create and sell their first products because working and doing creative stuff for somebody else for hire it's very different than selling directly. You're insulated from the market realities. You don't understand quite what people want except your boss. And it's very difficult to go from a uh, school and job and then freelance to create a product. A lot of people fail because they don't understand how different it is. And so our class gives them those skills so they can go and launch something and make money.
0: And sales Safari is really started as just one of the components of that class. When we first set out to create it, uh, and it was the first version was actually called the year of hustle was sort of an end to end it was the result of Amy and I we had gotten together in her and her husband Thomas's apartment in Vienna and you are doing like the the post-it note kanban board of all of the things that people either reasons that they don't start a business or reasons that when they do they make mistakes and they fail and they either never get to launch or they launch with sort of a, a fizzle and a die And what was interesting when we started teaching that version of the class, which is sort of everything leading up to launch, uh, a bunch of the components of that were, we didn't think they were all that high level, but we learned over time through, just through teaching that things like take notes and Mm -hmm. go do research on your audience Mm -hmm. aren't really specific enough. And so sales safaris really become the heart of the 30 by 500 class when, and and. and I'd argue that the majority of the lessons themselves, the exercises are, are tied directly to it when originally it was it was just that it was one step of many.
2: We would say things like go study, go, to, you know, go read what your audience is writing, study it and, and make notes on what you find. And you're going to use that. And people don't understand how to go study, read or make notes. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of college educated people. None of that made sense to them at all. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, as a self educated person, I thought
0: was, I found very shocking. So, Sales Safari has evolved over time into as yeah. close to a paint by numbers version of that process. Truly, it's truly involved a lot. Yeah, a huge amount. It's step by step. It's, it's a, every, every component is a here's not just what to do, but specifically how to do it. And here's the results that you get. And here's to know whether or not you're doing it right because you're going to use those results in the next component and things like that
2: and what it really is sales safari is internet ethnography Mm -hmm. combined with some close reading and um empathy like step-by-step empathizing with your customer to understand them
0: and also sort of a built-in feedback loop once you start applying the sales safari data you're sort of collecting sort of categories of notes Things like the pains that you notice in people, and not just the pains like what the problem is, but also how they describe it. You start collecting jargon, some of their specific detailed language and words they use to describe the problem, elements and contributions to their worldview, their deep seated beliefs that are sort of unshakable, uh, and then also the things that they talk about, they recommend, the things that they buy. And all of these things where the individual data points can be valuable, but the goal of Sales Safari is to have a systematic and repeatable approach so you can collect a shitload of it. You want a (laughs) ton, a ton, a ton of data because without a ton of data, you can't find patterns. And without patterns, you can't make smart decisions about your business.
2: Yeah, people who go and they... especially designers, developers, writers, et cetera, they think I'm going to make a product, they get one data point or they get one potential client or customer and they think, all right, this is it, I'm going to do it. And that's really a recipe for failure. Uh, You need to keep doing whatever research you're doing until it all comes together and it'll seem fruitless up until the point where immediately like the clouds will part and a ray of sunshine will burst through. The (laughs) chorus of angels will sing and you'll go, of course, this is what I should be doing. But people like to go on one data point because it doesn't take any work and because it feels right at first. It's uh,
1: it's bad though.
2: <laughs> it's a bad idea.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, I've been there. A lot it's of amazing. people have been there. Yeah, not only as the guy writing this, you know, chapter, but like a, a student of, of both of you. It's kind of amazing seeing the passion you have for it. I mean, that was just five minutes of like, this is what it is. Yeah. This is why it's awesome. You know, it's it's just really. I mean, the the, the energy is there. It's palpable. So. Which is great because the coffee hasn't really kicked
2: in yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: mine either. More coffee, um, please. That, I think that's a good segue to you know what what was the the impetus behind doing this and and what led you on this path to to now. Started when
2: I was very young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read like every book in the library when I was a kid. I read everything, and one of the books that really made a difference. Uh, in my life, was People Watching by Desmond Morris, and then his related books like Baby Watching and Cat Watching, etc. And uh, that gave me very, very early on the idea that you can understand people and creatures by observing them. So thanks, Desmond Morris. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, later on, I learned about ethnography, which is, of course, what Desmond Morris was doing. Mm -hmm. And then just later on when I started doing freelance and business and stuff, it just made sense for me to focus on what were people doing and how can I get in front of them? And so sales Safari, I mean, something that I've been doing sort of naturally since I was, you know, a a teenager. And then I started trying to teach it to my friends because, uh, as someone who was really well connected in the Ruby on rails and PHP worlds, I just watched my friends fail and fail and fail. And I'm like, um, you don't need to be failing. (laughs) And, uh, When we were launched – my husband and I launched Freckle, our software as a service, in 2008, the end of 2008. Software as a service grows really slowly in terms of revenue. Uh And uh, in 2010, I I decided I had to quit consulting because it was making me want to murder everyone. And so I was like, well, how can I make some money? We had shipped JavaScript Performance Rocks, which made us like 50 grand at that point. Um, And I decided that one of the most valuable things I could teach was the business stuff because we'd launched workshops, we'd launched ebooks, we'd launched software as a service, which was growing nicely. It's just slow. I'd sold so many big consulting contracts to difficult clients and got them to do what I wanted. Uh, I clearly had a skill that people lacked and I wanted to to share it with them. And that was the very first year of hustle. I was like, hey, Alex, you want to help me? Because I knew Alex has a lot of, we have a a lot of the most important worldviews in common.
0: And my background, I mean, we Amy and I have some similarities in the fact that we've done the employment track, we've done the freelancing consultant track. And
2: and then we did the impossible.
0: And <laughs>
2: <laughs> Separately.
0: As, as it were. Um, and, and what's interesting is it was two things. One was Amy and I were friends for a number of years before we started working together. So this was not a you know business partnership forged out of necessity. Right. It was more of a, hey, we do have... A common, in, we have a common interest and a common set of skills in terms of being able to connect with an audience and help them do something that's important to them. That's what's made us successful as both employees and free, freelancers. Honestly, and uh, the thing that was always my angle as a freelancer was what when everyone else was out there selling, you know, their their code, I was. Actually, getting to know the business that I was trying to serve, and say, "Here's what I think will actually make the work you're about to pay me to do pay for itself in a multiple." And nobody does that. Right.
2: Uh, Partially, nobody does it because they just think that they're they I think like a cog at all times. But also, I found one of the main reasons I hated consulting was the clients really don't. I mean, they say they want that, but they don't really. Right. They They ignore you. They hire you and they pay you, but then they ignore you what you say, which is frustrating.
0: But the, um, the, the the move to, to Amy and I working together on this was, I think, came from the same frustration of ha- both having created successful sort of alter businesses beyond our freelance, right? So Amy had been able to launch Freckle. It was young and growing at the time. I had Indie Hall, also young and growing at the time, and saying... How is it that we've created these things and seem to have dodged all of these bullets that take so many other people out? What can we share from what we've learned to help people avoid the failure rather than just, you know, lean into it and accept it and say that these lessons are necessary? you know, battle scars in order to be successful. That's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, we, we share a hatred of the idea that X can't be taught, whatever it is, X can't be taught, is said by people who are shitty teachers. Amen. So Alex, you didn't explain what Indie Hall was. For sure.
0: Listeners. Right. Sure. So Indie Hall uh, is a co-working community and space. We're one of the first in the world, which puts me at, uh, uh, in a distinct position to say that there legitimately were not people doing what we did when we started and i had to learn a lot from outside influences and things like that to figure out how to make indie hall work and for those of you who know about co-working and maybe have visited a co-working space uh, one thing that i'll urge you to do next time you set foot in a co-working space is look for one thing in particular and that's whether or not people in that co-working space are actually interacting with each other whether they're talking to each other do they walk up and say hello to their neighbors and things like that or do they walk in they drop down their computer they put in their headphones and and not talk to anybody and one of the things that sets indie hall apart and the thing that i think we work the hardest at since the very beginning is we're not so much a place to work although absolutely i think one of the best places to work we're a place to meet people who you wouldn't otherwise meet and really a community more than anything else it's more of a club and a clubhouse
2: it's totally a club
0: and uh, and eight years later, uh, we're still growing strong and evolving and doing all sorts of things. But the 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 interesting thing about my experience in building Indie Hall and community building is the practice that we both do at Indie Hall and we teach other co-working spaces and things like that. It's got a lot in common with Sales Safari. That's not something that I talk about a whole lot, but it's a lot of the same components of... Observation at scale, pattern watching, close listening, building empathy. And then I guess the part that's a little bit different from a lot of, from 30 by 500 in many ways, uh, and a lot of the businesses that 30 by 500 helps people create is when you create a product business, generally speaking, your customers are not aware of each other, or not super aware of each other. Um, they may be aware of each other in terms of testimonials or you know, they may bump into each other or even if you've got like a, a mailing list or something, a discussion list or support forums or things like that. But Indie Hall's is this kind of bizarre business where the customers are extremely aware of each other to the point where the majority of the value that you get as a paying member of Indy Hall is actually coming from other members, which means as a business owner, my senses for listening and understanding people where they actually are needs to be very very good mm-hmm. uh, otherwise we react to what we see versus rather we react to what we hear versus what we see uh, and make make bad decisions that a, a lot of other shared shared workspaces do
2: uh indie hall and therefore alex is sort of like the godfather Uh, of co-working communities because so many of them have made the same stupid mistakes and then had to shut down because uh, they didn't serve and focus on their customers first they instead focused on the extraneous like baubles like fancy desks and a fancy space and then they were like well how do I fill this space which if you are spend any time in entrepreneur forums you know people make things and they're like well how do I get people to buy it it's the Mm -hmm. same thing it's the same problem people have. And Indy Hall and Alex did it the opposite way, which is why he and I are such a natural fit.
0: Yeah. If you think about starting a business with venture capital or really any stage of funding before there's money coming from customers, what happens is, is you set a scale. You pre a scale that the business needs to be in order to be successful. And the yeah. more venture capital you take on at really even a fake quote unquote favorable uh, rate or, or valuation, that transaction dictates a necessity for growth. And that's what people say makes a startup a startup. But it changes the kind of decisions that you make and who you serve. Instead of serving your customers, you serve the size of the container that you've created for that business to to need to fill and do by hook or by crook. Unfortunately, too many people lean towards Mm -hmm. crook uh, Mm -hmm. in order to make it work or you fail. And so many businesses fail at a totally reasonable, profitable scale because they never are able to hit that imaginary bounding box. They're over leveraged from the day one. And if you look at a co-working space as a physical manifestation of the exact same thing, If you start with a 20,000 square foot space, Uh. you now need to have membership to support a 20,000 square foot space and then some before you can ever consider yourself successful. And we take the inverse approach and teach the inverse approach, which is have members before you even have the overhead of a space and let the membership and its growth and its needs and its way of supporting each other dictate the size and other attributes that are far more important than the size of the space itself.
1: So that's really interesting. So, so I I usually see sales safari taught in the context of online products, right? Uh, and I feel like this is a great example of something that is not obviously online. In and it'd be a, kind of an interesting exploration of how does sales safari translate to the offline world. And maybe that's a, a huge. That's probably a huge topic. But you know, roughly speaking, how did you? apply, you know, the, the, the rough principles or, or philosophy or, you know, a a mindset of self safari to building an offline business.
0: So my short answer, and then I will hand it over to Amy, is that not much changes with the exception that everything slows down. Mm -hmm. You lose a bunch of really valuable tools like search. And copy paste. And <laughs> yeah. you rely on your ears and your brain. And this, like this, the one thing that I've tuned that, I, I mean, this is expert level Safari in so many ways, is the ability to disassociate what someone is saying from what you interpret them saying and remember what they actually said, not what you think they said. And that's something that's much easier to do online when it's written because you can literally copy and paste what they said when you're talking to people, man, is that hard. So you're at at a bunch of disadvantages to try and do this offline and it's slow. Um... But I'm curious what Amy has to say about this.
2: So we don't need to invent in-person Safari because ethnography and whatnot have already been invented. Right. Safari was my invention to take those into internet forums. And I sound like an ancient person saying internet forums. I don't know. Forums. <laughs> <laughs> to the internet. Um, <laughs> the coffee's is speaking in now. Most people cannot observe while they're engaging. It's very difficult. Not only is it difficult to dissociate, but literally you have to have two parallel running processes in your brain and they both have to be working at full speed. Very few people can do that. I, don't, I think even with training, very few people can do that. If you're in like a local user group, for example, and you're like, oh, well, they, these people have these problems in this user group. It's, I mean, even that's accurate you then think that, well, they all must be this way across the entire world, all the different user groups. Every Rubyist must have this problem. Mm-hmm. That could be so untrue. You have a local a local maximum right in, in a lot of ways, like literally local, and you might have just reached the peak of what's local, and it may not peak anywhere else. which Which
0: isn't inherently, like that's not inherently a bad thing, but it's a limitation you need to be really, really aware of.
2: Right. So when you're serving a actually local market, which is what Alex does, it works so much better because it doesn't really matter if people in Tucson, Arizona, have the same concerns about working alone uh, as a freelancer because they're not going to join Indy Hall. Right. Probably. If you serve a local market, then local safari is the absolute best thing you can do. But on the other hand, people then take that kind of thing. If I say that kind of thing and they think, oh, I'm going to go to my salon and see what struggles they have. (laughs) <laughs> but that doesn't show you the full picture. I cannot tell you how many friends and early on students before we learned to discourage them went and said, all right, well, my local bar, restaurant, salon has this staff scheduling problem. I'm going to make software for it. And they they think they identified a problem that they were going to solve, but they didn't understand salons at all. They watched them misuse pieces of paper to do this rough scheduling, but they didn't understand that these people never buy software, ever. If they bought software, they wouldn't have this problem to start with. We've seen the staff scheduling issue for local businesses come up four or five times over the past few years. And it's always a failure because you can observe someone doing a task and not understand the greater context. And the way that you understand the greater context is long-term observation at like many different intervals.
0: And the other part to that is if you ask them to show you how they use it, you're instantly at a disadvantage because they know you're watching over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that instantly creates... Changes, even if they're micro changes in how they use it, because they're trying to show you something instead of doing what they normally do, in order for you to observe. So, so sales safari is uh, there's an element to sales safari where there's a very intentional distance, and a lack of participation people need to not know that you're there watching that sounds really creepy when i say (laughs) it that way but it's but the reason for it and this is sort of this is professional lurking if you want to look at it that way you're there to watch what they do and say when they don't know that you're there
2: it's not that they're doing it in private right these are public forums and mailing lists and such but they aren't performing for you.
0: Exactly. It's what are they what what do they say unprompted?
2: In in ethnography, I mean, I consider this a Margaret Mead problem, right? Margaret Mead was this famous anthropologist who fucked up big time because she went to uh these remote villages and she asked the villagers and especially the like teenaged girls what their lives were like and then she came back with these insanely sensationalized tales of crazy sex lives and everything and they were just totally pulling her on. So like in in people studying circles, Margaret Mead is sort of a cautionary tale. In fact, she's probably the cautionary tale because she took the word of her subjects instead of observing what actually went on. Very gullible and you don't want to become a Margaret Mead.
1: So why 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 you in your experience, you know, why do people misrepresent or sometimes lie or sometimes just say something to you know, get you off their back. Like, why? Why is it that so, asking people isn't reliable?
2: I don't think it's usually. It's. I think it's rarely on purpose. Yeah, I think it's rarely on purpose. People don't understand what they do all day. They don't pay attention to what they do all day. Um, as a designer, I can tell you this is absolutely fact. Because if I explain all these problems with like email software, people are like, oh, but it's not so bad, or like, oh, that's just <laughs> email, whatever. And I'm like, well, what about if it was like this? And they're like, oh, I never thought of that. I never thought that maybe I should have a people view that lists all the files Bob sent me, so I don't have to search for Bob and then click every fucking email with a freaking <laughs> paperclip icon. You, you,
0: you found a hot button topic for Amy, by the way. Yeah, people understand they Amy, do Amy,
2: what they don't. No, out.
0: Amy's do. to Amy's point. There's, um, there's a there's a numbness to some pains, um, but the the other side of it is pe- well, it's people. Tr- really ultimately train themselves to not think about it or to think about it in a certain or specific way, or they've heard a certain thing that they think they're supposed to say. And again, it's not an intentional act of deception. That's extremely rare. Uh, it's more that you're relying on them to be reliable. Yeah. And that's <laughs> statistically just not going to be the case. They're not aware if, if they were so aware of their problem, there's a good chance the problem would be solved by now.
1: Which is point. why
2: every programmer makes their own tools and they're all terrible. Yeah. No offense, programmers. I'm a programmer. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. The other thing is there's research that shows this. Experts don't understand how they do what they do. They can't verbalize it. Hmm. Um, and when you start observing it, they start like, trying to explain it while they do it. The performance worsens a lot.
1: I also remember the example uh, you gave in a talk a while ago of the, uh, the the Walkman focus group. Oh, yeah. They said, we want yellow, and then they all picked up black.
2: Yeah, all the kids were asked by Sony, which one is cooler? Which one would you want to buy? The yellow, cool, sporty, yellow Walkman? I think it was a Discman, or the black one. And then they're like, thanks for doing our our um, focus group. Uh, here's two tables worth of Walkmans. Pick the one you want. And they almost all picked black. Yeah, it's people people's vision of themselves is different than how they actually are. That's humanity for you.
0: And also I've learned, this is something I've learned through Indie Hall is that people rarely, <laughs> this is bizarre. People so rarely act in their own best interest. It's really bizarre. Mm. It, and it's, and it's not that they are intentionally self-sabotaging is that there? if there are habits at play, that they they generally aren't aware of that habit and they will simply revert to the habit. So the, the example I can give you is that people choose to work in a co-working space generally because they don't want to be by themselves. Otherwise they could stay at home, right? Right. And yet, so often given the opportunity, if they come into a co-working space, the first place that they will choose uh to sit is by themselves. Why yeah. is that? Huh. Uh I, I like to think of it, it's, it's like when you get into an, an elevator by yourself, you stand in the center and the second, another person walks in the elevator, you both go to the opposite corners of that tiny little box. It's a weird habit and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a personal bubble thing, or I'm used to sitting by myself. So I think I'm going to sit by myself. And if you don't do so, it, it takes an outside influence, which in the case of our co working space is me and my team. Doing choice architecture and design to help our members, our paying customers, get what they actually came there to get. Because if they are left to their own devices, often they won't.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. Is it? it, Do you think? uh, Do you find that peer pressure plays a role as well, or is it you know like a like so called societal norm in the in the context of where they're at? Um, Or is it just you know, hey, I'm I'm awkward being social. But yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be myself. I think it
0: it depends. And there's, there's not a, and I'll say all this, like there's not a right or a wrong way to work in a co working space. You work however you're most productive. But what we know is the people who get the most value generally do a handful of certain things. And that comes from observation. So if we can help people choose those things for themselves, that's where it's one of the other elements that we teach in, in sales Safari. uh, One of like the sales Safari derivatives is our copywriting techniques. Um, which are inherent, which are designed to be persuasive. It's not about getting somebody to do something they wouldn't already do. No, it's getting never. them to make a choice that is in their best interest. And in, and if it's not in the best interest, it doesn't work. And right. that's the beautiful thing about it. It's not persuasion for the sake of. Getting people to do something, uh, you know, detrimental. You can't plant a seed in someone's. You can't plant plant a, an idea of in someone's head and simply have them do something, uh, that is against their best interest. That's uh, if you can, it's evil. Um, um,
2: but most people aren't that good.
0: Yeah, so that's just it. The people. Yeah, you have to be very, very good at it in order for yeah. that to be effective. And most people just aren't that good. Thank God. Right. Right. Master manipulators. <laughs> They exist and they are scary. It's true. But but it comes down to, you know, when you think about sales and co- copywriting, writing persuasively, even if it's not a sale in terms of money changing hands, but getting somebody to do something, writing an email that people will read, writing a blog headline that will get somebody to read the rest of the article. You have to think about why reading the article is in that person's best interest and then show that to them because they're not going to do it on their own.
2: It's this idea that people walk around looking for solutions to their problems. No, people walk around trying to tune out their problems because they don't Mm -hmm. expect that they can solve them. So you have to reflect back to them, hey, this is the problem that you're having. And, you know, it's a big deal, but also we can fix it together. That is the heart of my copywriting techniques.
1: So that's a good segue. What is that process? That the you know uh, an overview of the process that helps you understand what would make someone read that email, use this product, you know, uh, read that blog post.
2: The key is that you start by observing what they actually already do. You don't try to persuade a vegetarian to buy Omaha Steaks. You look <laughs> at what they actually do in real life on the internet, what they read, what they share with each other what problems they discuss, um, what things that they ask help for, how they help others. And then you get in there with something that already fits their behavior and their worldview. So if people don't watch videos or they exclusively watch videos or you find they pay more for videos, then you'll want to consider giving them videos. Right. And the process is essentially figure out what hurts them, reflect that back to them in a very empathetic, understanding way, and then offer them assistance. So you don't say, hey, and I can help you with that. Say, you know, what if you didn't have to restart Skype five times during your podcast?
1: <laughs> that would help.
2: Right. Yeah, or this little tool we started using the other day, um, that Alex found, called Line N. So you can actually hear yourself on your own monitor while you're recording stuff. Oh, imagine that. Yeah. It's like you have to start recording and then stop recording and then reopen it and listen to it. What you just recorded to be sure that everything's correct. Why do you have to take all these steps? So what if you didn't have to take all these steps? What if you could do it simultaneously? Hey, here's this app.
0: By the way, it was incredibly hard to find a solution to that problem. I was someone who was looking for it. Uh, This is a great illustration of what Amy was talking about before. I knew the problem that I had. I knew that I wanted to solve it. What I didn't know was how to describe it in the way that the person who had created and was marketing the product was describing it.
2: They didn't do as good a job as I just did right now.
0: Right, exactly. If they had, I would have typed a couple of things into Google and boom, they would have popped right up. So there's a there's a natural SEO to this as well is if I'm trying to guess what way would a product maker describe their product in order to find it, you're making me do double the work. And that's why I'm never going to find you versus help, let me type in the problem that I have in the way that I would already describe it. And poof, there you are.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like a, a reverse jargon uh, translation process or something. That was a terrible sentence, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like reverse decoding. That's 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 crazy. Um, so what I what I love about Cell Safari is that it takes advantage of the fact that we're now at a, at a time where all this stuff takes place online for the most part. You know, there are some communities that don't. Uh, hang out in forums or you know, link sharing sites or Reddit or whatever, but it takes it takes advantage of the fact that hey, by and large, the the vocal members of some community are talking about this, the problems they have and 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 whatever. I think that's that's an interesting. It's it's a small revelation, but it changes everything.
0: This is the thing to to like put all of that in perspective, Scott. Because I think you're totally right. Is that in order for someone To go on the internet and ask a question of a group of strangers about how to solve their problem is a very strong indicator of the level of pain they're in. Even if it seems like very little pain to you, like, oh, that's so simple. Here's how to fix it. It's awesome that you think that, but that's clearly not where they're coming from. Otherwise, they would have fixed it by now. So keep that in mind that in order for people to post the problem they're having for help to a... Internet of Strangers. That's a that's a clue right there.
2: Yeah. For example, uh, my husband Thomas is like a lot of people. He just kind of like goes along. And I'm like, why are you hanging socks on the drying rack this way? If you hang them this way, they'll dry faster. And he's like, I've been hanging socks this way for 30 years. I don't care. So (laughs) can't really help Thomas, no matter how much you want him to be helped. (laughs) Um, In these areas, things he doesn't care about. But if he were on a forum asking how to maximize his hang dry time, then you would know it was time to sell him one of those crazy octopus hanger things Mm -hmm. that they sell in places (laughs) where they don't have dryers. The struggle is
0: real so I would, <laughs> <laughs> more and more of our examples are related to underwear amy have you noticed that
2: <laughs> have we talked about underwear lately no I it's,
0: beca- it's because it's because of it's because of the uh because of the the tidiness book
2: oh that's right that's right you showed me that last night we've yeah.
0: assigned to as it's now assigned reading in the new 30 by 500 and and uh, as such, people are spending more
1: time thinking about their underwear and socks. Let's move on, Scott. I do have to pause though because I think I just read that book, or at least I bought it for my girlfriend. It's like a square book, like the Japanese home yeah. technique. Yeah. Did you
2: read it or did you not read it?
1: I, I scanned it, but I, I I knew enough to give it to my girlfriend.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Brilliant. But yeah, uh, that's the book. That's cool. Yeah, I, I I thought, and she sold like you know a thousand bucks worth of uh secondhand clothing because you get rid of so much stuff
2: jesus when i read from uh, some of our students like i just went through 200 tops like (laughs) clothing items for the top part of your body including sweaters and stuff thomas and i also recently went through our closet and got our stuff so that we could um get rid of one of our wardrobes before the book even and it's like i don't think we had 200 tops together people are very different
0: So Amy, if you want a little bit more about this, Scott, for you and and the other folks that are maybe listening to this, Amy and I did a actually two-part conversation about that book where Amy had been reading it and really reflecting on how much of the process that the book teaches about how, like why your approach to tidying is wrong and here's a new one has parallels to 30 by 500 and the way we teach business. So it's so
2: good. I mean, the key key thing that makes Marie Kondo's book so amazing, it's called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, is that she's basically telling you and demonstrating through logical steps why all of the feel-good advice about like, oh, tidy 15 minutes a day, tidy one room at a time, tidy slowly, blah, 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 will never work for you. And that's exactly the same thing as oh, well, try this and, you know, customer interviews and pivot. And if that doesn't work, pivot again. It's like the you're working with a system that's wrong. And no matter how you tweak the wrong system, it'll still be wrong. Whereas you what you really need to do is question the base assumptions and start fresh. And uh, that's what we do with our class. And I was so amazed to see the same idea apply to something everyone struggles with, which is tidiness.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and that's, that's an interesting segue, too. I, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the so-called lean startup mentality that's just permeating startups everywhere uh you know that's it's it's something that people kind of take it as blind faith these days um any any thoughts on that
2: i could fill a book with my thoughts on that <laughs> <laughs> did you did you have a like a specific aspect of it that you wanted to talk about or
1: should we just pick one just just pick one actually, because I know you write a lot about this and, you know, I, I think you could probably pinpoint your, your biggest critique without me kind of guiding you into it. So I think
0: it's important to think about the lean startup before we even get into what it is and why it doesn't work. Talk about the problem it tries to solve, mm-hmm. right? And the problem it tries to solve in theory is not very different from the problem we're trying to solve, which is ship something that people actually buy. Right. Right. Agreed. Right? And to avoid wasting time and effort and money and other uh, other finite resources on getting there. And sorta of what Amy was just saying about the tidying advice, the lean startup is sort of the version the, the other tidying advice that she was talking about. It's advice being given at the level where you're just tweaking an already broken decision. An already broken system where the lean startup really leads with the, the the genius idea that came from inside of you and says here's how you will take my lean startup magic fairy wand and if you tap it on the right people's shoulders in the right direction you'll magically make a sale <laughs> you like that that was beautiful you like that i like that <laughs> um, <laughs> please say
2: fairy wand again Fairy <laughs>
0: wand. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's, I mean, that's how I've been describing 30 by 500 is as the antidote to that feeling of tapping people on the shoulder with your, do you want this wand and hoping that <laughs> it's getting weirder, isn't it? Um, uh, and, and avoiding that, avoiding that entirely. So Amy, do you want to pick up and run from there?
2: Yeah. So basically, how's that we for a setup by Cinderella, the way, <laughs> and Cinderella is just going to keep scrubbing different, uh, stoves until someone comes and nominates her to be the magical princess
0: and it's not that lean startup can't work it's that it works on an it's like what's what's the term in, in programming is it eventual consistency like lean startup can work given an infinite amount of resources and time to maybe finally make a match
2: <laughs> okay thousand monkeys typewriter shakespeare right well, I think the key is garbage in, garbage out. If you have something that's already fundamentally good, then Lean Startup can help because you're yep. just refining what's already good. But most people don't have something that's already fundamentally sound to start with. So, um, and there's the, no way
0: for them to know whether or not they do. Lean correct. doesn't teach you that. Just
2: throw stuff at the wall until something sticks, which is basically the Lean Startup approach. But the thing is, if you actually read the book, The Lean Startup, it's really vague. Yeah, It doesn't actually tell you, do this, do this, do this. It's, um, it's more of a pastiche which is fine, except people act as if it's a set of instructions, which it's not, which leads to all the confusion and difference in opinions that you find people infighting about all the time in the lean forums. So the, the thing about lean startup is that it's inspired by the Toyota way and lean manufacturing, which which is very clear. Like some of the best parts of the book are the quotes from the Toyota way. Um, no one starts an assembly line as like, well, let's see what comes out the end. And if we don't like it, we'll change it. Right which is what lean startup does. It's like, we're going to make something. If it doesn't work, we'll change it. That's not how anyone makes cars. And that's not how anyone ever made cars. By the time they get to lean manufacturing, the what is a known quantity and it's established that it functions. Then you just improve the manufacturing itself. So I'm not actually sure how the lean startup came about. It doesn't, it doesn't logic out to me if, if logic can be a verb. It Whereas we are like, well what makes something people want to buy? And then what do people want to buy? Because you cannot make something people want without understanding what people want or being very lucky. And luck is not a business plan.
1: Exactly. And and the the sales safari process takes the onus off you to have this, you know, the 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 magic fairy wand idea machine that will suddenly, you know, solve everyone's problems and be immensely successful. Says Hey, the, the, when you watch the social network, when you watch these fantasized movies about, you know, Silicon Valley, like this is actually not how it happens.
0: Or it's that it's not that that's not how it happens. It's that's an un, you it's unlikely that you can recreate that. Yeah. This is all about. So here, here's the thing is th- there's a there's a fundamental difference between the business that's willing to run a run around with hopefulness. That Cinderella story that we were talking about before and predictable, repeatable results. Mm-hmm. Predictable, repeatable results means you can work with consistency. It means that you can work on a schedule. You know, if you've got limited time, you're trying to do this on the side, or you've got health issues, or you've got kids in a family, you don't want to give things up, the lean approach, again, it, requ- it it will swell to fill the amount of time and resources you give it. And you can keep doing it in in to infinity, whereas with consistent, repeatable results, you can do it with finite amounts of time and know that you'll get there.
2: We should sell a T-shirt that says 30 by 500 students do it in a finite amount of time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's just And it's, it's a beautiful thing because it, it actually scales also. Yes, it does is you know that when you do it and it works, you can keep doing it. You can do it. You can do it more and get better at it. You can, you can put more in and get more out. It's an actual process versus this very vague, fuzzy open to interpretation thing that, that is lean.
1: Right. And, and no one ever said, uh, the more you learn about your customer, the, the, the more disadvantaged you'll be. I mean, it's it, it scales right. with your time. So you know, we're we're rounding out the hour here. One last question. I was I was talking with a friend the other day and talking about just pains and versus joy, and and I was like, you know, from my experience, finding what people bitch about, they complain about, like that's more of a solid way of of approaching a business than. Oh, you know, like these things made me so happy um, in which no one ever really says in, in these forms. But, you know, right. it was the debate of basing a product on a pain versus a joy. And I'd, I'd love to explore that um, in your experience. Like what, what's, what, what made you build Silk Safari on the pains and not the joys that people mention?
2: Because joy is much more personal and also a lot of cultural groups. And I don't mean like ethnic or you know, yeah. country cultures, but industry, culture, et cetera, don't talk about what's awesome right. all the time. Or they do, but it's sort of disingenuous how everything is awesome these days. Um, Lego movie. When So 30 by 100 focuses on providing business value. And business value always comes from something that is a waste to start with. Mm. Or a lack. So... Freckle time tracking, my app, may create pockets of joy, which I think is awesome. But the most important thing that it does is serve a business need while not being terrible. So Freckle is actually very pleasant to use. But just saying it's actually fun to use. I mean, you could apply that to anything and it would be meaningless. The thing is, it's time tracking that you'll actually use because it's pleasurable. The time tracking is the key part here, if that makes sense mm-hmm uh there was a scene in this book called good omens by terry pratchett and neil
1: Gaiman. have you read it uh i have not but it's on my amazon wish list
2: oh it's really good you should read it now <laughs> it's fantastic so the one of the main characters this is demon crowley and he's sort of gone native on the, in, in the in the world he wants to be human basically and live as human um and the demon's job is to create evil, right? So they have this demon meeting and the middle demon middle management is there and these other demons are Mm -hmm. like, I tempted a priest to commit blah 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 and I tempted a man to kick his dog and blah 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 and Crowley's like, well you guys are not thinking big enough. Those are individual acts that maybe are strong acts of evil but what I did was I invented the M25 motorway Hmm. and people drive around it and curse it thousands of them every single day which is especially funny because British highways are terrible. Um, and it's, he, he joked that it was in the design of a, a demonic sigil, the highway, which if you look <laughs> at it from above, it's pretty pretty hilarious. But yeah. the idea that there's like this low-level accretion of evil thousands of times a day, uh, I like to, to try to create the opposite. <laughs> like think, think how many horrible man hours each day are, are burned using Microsoft Word.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Right, or enterprise time tracking software. But the thing is, if you just say, I'm going to create joy, you'd be like, here's a cup of ice cream that doesn't actually tell you where to go. People like kitties. They like kitties. They like ice cream. They like jazz music. But but those are harder things to sell unless they're in the mood for them. Whereas if you say you struggle with this problem every day, imagine if it was actually a positive interaction instead. Then you actually get people listening because if they're not in the mood for ice cream, they're not going to buy ice cream. You can't stimulate demand for it easily. Um but if you work with something that they're suffering with, then you have a conversation opener.
1: I love that characterization. You have to be in the mood for these things. I, I mean, that's – I've never heard it put like that before. I think that's really powerful.
2: Yeah, stimulating demand is difficult.
1: Yeah, otherwise you're uh, you're like, hey, would you like um, ice cream delivery? I mean, the, the, the ice cream truck drives, drives around with music for a reason, you know? Right.
2: Exactly. Well, that's Pavlovian, yes. Yep. I think I read an example once um, – about pricing, it was like <laughs> free boob jobs. Scott, do you want one <laughs> for yourself? No, thank you. Exactly.
1: I have been drinking a lot of soy milk, though, so I don't know.
2: <laughs> Good luck with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this this all this all comes back to just to sort of round out Amy's point. It's it's very easy uh, and also ineffective to spend a lot of time trying to convince somebody else that they want something versus meeting somebody where they are in the moment where they want it. Not only are you able to serve them, but they get this feeling of sort of magic mind readingness, which is mm-hmm. that's a complicated concatenation of words, but the <laughs> the idea being not only are you able to solve their problem, but they get this feeling, you know, for not in addition to the joy of having their problem solved, Think about that that elation that you feel when it's like, finally, somebody gets me and gets my problem and, by the way, found a way to solve it. And it's even if it's not perfect, even if it's got shortcomings, which, by the way, it will. It always does. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter because they feel felt. They feel like you get them, which instantly instills some trust, which makes them which adds to their willingness and likelihood of buying. People buy – that's another factor in in the 3500 process is strain – the difference between selling to clients as a freelancer or even selling yourself to an employer where you've only got to convince one person is you can get to know them and figure out what you need to tell them in order to get them to hire you or give you right. a raise. When you're selling products, you're not allowed to be in the room for every sale. So you need new mechanisms for building trust and right. meeting people where they are – Helping them genuinely through e-bombs and then through a pitch that says, I get you. I get your problem. This is your problem, right? And they're like, yeah, that is my problem. You even described it the way I described it. Are you reading my mind? And -hmm. then you show them how things can be better. They're like, yeah, that's actually what I want. That ratchets up the trust. They they believe that you get them. Because you do. Because you do. And, of course, this only works if you actually follow through. So – You're, you know, Amy likes to talk about, we we study infomercials and show our students infomercials. Reasons if people hate infomercials because they sell junk that doesn't deliver on the promise. If they worked, we wouldn't hate them so much. So getting the customer's trust that you actually know what problem they have delivers so much. Uh, And then when you do actually fix the problem, as that sort of like cherry on top of the trust sunday since today's been full of metaphors (laughs) um then then you've also got a customer who's not only happy but wants to talk about you and your product and how much your product is awesome not because your product is awesome but because your product helped make them awesome your product solved their problem A, a customer whose problem is solved is going to talk about the fact that their problem was solved and you get to go along for the
1: ride I think that's a great conclusion, unless you, you all have any oh, you all have anything, <laughs> anything left, any parting thoughts.: So
0: Scott, if I was to tell you that there was a way for you to quickly drop uh, acquired accents, would you be interested in that?:
1: I might be interested in that. <laughs>